Welcome to another edition of Practitioner Radio, Pink Elephant's podcast for the IT management community. To Practitioner Radio, Pink Elephant's podcast for the IT management community. This is episode 53. Hey everyone, it's Chris Canty, and we are back and looking at the year 2013. Hi, Troy. Hey, Chris. Looking back. Looking good. Looking back. Looking, it was uh, quite quite the year. Yeah, it was quite the year. And now we're sitting in that polar vortex up here in Canada. I am looking at minus 19 degrees Celsius and beautiful. White snowy day. I think uh, you know one of my earliest trips to Pink uh, was it was very cold, obviously, because I was there in the winter, and I got introduced to something I'd never heard before: ice wine. <laughs> ice wine—that's a really decadent treat, but that that is good. Yeah, it was really interesting. I was like, I never heard it, but it was actually kind of tasty. I'm like, I really don't want to drink wine here at a festival. They're like, but it's ice wine, as if that was okay. It's like it's like candy syrup, basically. It's it's very expensive. They have to throw away like three or four crops to make one crop of ice wine. Wow. Wow. Scarcity even comes to the wine market. So this we're looking back at 2013 today and all the the top shows in 2013 and kind of uh, looking at some of the trends and things that we saw. But I think before we do that, I think I, if it's okay with you, I just want to say thank you to all the people who listen. I know it means a great deal to, to me and Troy and Pink and everyone who shares information. We get email and feedback from people and tweets and all sorts of things all the time. Uh, and we really appreciate everyone who takes time to listen to Practitioner Radio. And we've had quite a journey, Chris. You were telling me it's it's been three years? Yes, Practitioner Radio started almost exactly three years ago today. So it was actually January 24th. Today we're recording. It's the 28th. And 2011 uh, was our very first Practitioner Radio. And that was episode one. And this is episode uh, 53. And since then, we've recorded... Uh, 1,590 minutes and change of shows, which equals about 26.5 hours of actual content. So literally you could, if you were, if the earth were spinning a little bit slower, you'd get a longer than a day. <laughs> Not sure that makes me feel tired or excited, but it's, yeah, it's been quite an, it's been quite a journey. Yes, it makes me feel very excited and very tired. So for 2013, I thought we'd just do what we do each year when we look back at the year, because we've done this, this is the third time we've done this now. We've got the top five shows actually yeah we have five, the top five shows and i thought we'd just just start them and work our way up the list from the show that was number five and go all the way to number one how's that let's do it all right at number five this year we had episode 43 which was major incident review and root cause analysis so a lot of a lot of integration there uh about uh, close to 600 people listen to that uh, downloads probably about 40 or 50 Thoughts on number five, major incident review and root cause analysis, number 43. So I think the premise, first of all, major incident management is something that anyone in our field knows and has to live through. But I think one of the things that we're going to talk about, uh, even in our new show, we'll talk about that later, but the reality is the embedded nature of technology to all business process and tech, you know, maybe there is no such thing as business tech, IT, it's business technology. Everything now is so dependent on information technology that its failure has this massive impact. So when you basically are living through the pain of disruption, you've got to figure out why that happened and somehow figure out a way to avoid it happening again. But this conversation in that show specifically, this, you know, major incident review 
and it maybe should have said versus root cause analysis, it talks about the difference between the reactive, okay, it broke, the world kind of blew apart here. How do we put the pieces back together again? You know, Humpty Dumpty syndrome versus what can we learn from this and proactively move into in removing and stabilizing so the future doesn't have this reoccurrence. So there's a difference between that post-mortem and root cause analysis discussion that Eitel talks about as part of problem management, the journey from reactive to proactive. Yeah, and I think this was also, this is uh, Gary Case was a host uh, on, a sh- on the show with us. And he really went into uh, a lot of that. Uh, and Gary's, uh, you know, pretty, pretty interesting when it comes to how he just makes things make sense. And I remember we, the thing I really liked about the show was when we talked about, you know, the problem management's part of a, uh, you know, CSI, and then we linked it and talked about the different learning styles. I mean, we kind of covered a lot when it comes to major incident and root cause analysis and bringing those two together. Um, so in some ways, it was kind of a foundational show, but in other ways, it was, you know, it was interesting because we brought in a lot of things. We even talked about Rob England's standard and case. The, t- the Thunderbolt tip from that show, by, by the way, was whenever you're doing major incident review and root cause analysis, it should never be about pointing figures or placing blame. It will kill effectiveness, the effectiveness of the process. It should be about how we can improve and how we can uh, deliver better value to our customers. That's the ideal. Now, unfortunately, and that's what we talked about, often this major incident review is let's pull all the guilty parties and figure out who who did this mm. and if it's a vendor god help them because we're going to slap them around it, this is not the point that we're supposed to be trying to get done within this concept of a root cause analysis this major incident review is typically reactive mm. and it will happen pretty much in parallel or just after the incident versus the root cause analysis may be something that's called into play a little bit l- later in the process as well in fact, I was doing some research because I'm doing a webinar soon on this. And this is talking about major incident handling. And I, there's interesting correlation that I'm looking into right now between major incident handling and the principles and policies of first responders. You know, our brave men and women out there and the police mm. and the firefighting. And mm. so major crisis. And there's a real correlation between the principles and practices of those folks Mostly it's preparation in the event that it should happen, right? So in that concept, they believe that most of their focus is prep so that, God forbid, when something does happen, they can react to it quickly, stabilize, recover, and, you know, protect and secure. That's not how we typically look at major incident reviews. It's, all right, the world fell apart. We may or may not have got this thing back up and running again. Now, what happened? It's it's not about major incident handling, it's major incident post-mortem review. You know, it's interesting you should bring up first responders because that makes me think last year at the Pink uh, Conference 2013, I guess. Gosh, 2013 feels like I'm still in it. Uh, Rob England did a session on the checklist manifesto. Yes. And one of the things he talked about was first responders and how much checklists can come in. And the way you described it just now, I thought, it makes me wonder if things are starting to happen, like you're in the middle of, of, of a major incident. You know, is there a role for checklists and that sorts of things? And then could those be part of the CSI when you go back to the root cause analysis? Well, think about it this way. How much time do you have to think when the world is falling apart, right? And things are falling down around your ears. You have very little time to think, right? So if you if you haven't gotten your things such as, you know, who's who do I contact? What are their phone numbers? Uh, who are the vendors that are involved? What are their contact lists? Uh, 
where are the configuration and files with the knowledge base articles I need to basically rely on? If you haven't got all of that ready at hand or have pre-thought these are things you might need, most of your time is scrambling just trying to figure out who to call and what to look for. Mm. So that checklist is actually one of the things when a major incident is called and first responder team comes in, there's a captain of this team that literally goes down the checklist and says, okay, do we have the right people here? Are the systems up and running we need for communications, the bridges, the, you know, the whatever technologies, telephony technologies we're using? Do we have these contact lists? Do we have all of the systems we're going to need to enable this to occur, this recovery process to occur efficiently? That checklist is necessary. Otherwise, you're not sure if you're totally prepared to handle this incident at hand. Mm. There's too many details to try to keep it all in your head, basically. No, there are. And I mean, I think we all use checklists to some some point. I mean, some are very cognitive-based. Like, I have a bunch of checklists, you know, for even simple stuff. Like, uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a hotel and, and the water suddenly gets cold or you run out of cold water or hot water at home. I literally have a checklist of, okay, this has to get done in the next 30 seconds. Like, brush my teeth and get out, right? Or just something simple like that. And then I've got very elaborate checklists if I leave for a trip, right? And I'm running late. I can take gigantic sections in the list and go, okay, I don't have time for that right now. And just move to something else. So Just apply that to task list, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of software out there that you can use to basically set up your task. And so it triggers reminders for you. When do people tend to rely on automation and task lists? Well, when they're setting things up and then when they're trying to make them better would be my answer. That's true. But let's say your life is relatively un- unencumbered with complexity, right? Oh. And you only have a couple tasks and this is fine. You can keep these in your head and you've, you, know, you don't have to revert to the string around your finger or the, the list of things you've got to check off because really there's not that much complexity I can manage as I can remember. But when things get very complex, when you have multiple, multiple balls in the air, our friend Jack used to call it spinning plates, right? In that show that we did on portfolio management, you really can't manage without some kind of effective recall device that reminds you that you have these things to do. In fact, I typically go in and out of task list automation. When things get hairy, I rely on it. When things slow down, I revert back to kind of manual methods. Yeah. It's tricky uh, when you get into this this type of concept because you know everyone's going to have their own, I guess, point of view when it comes to being in the middle of a crisis. And you know, do we all agree on those checklists? And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of internal stuff that comes online too. I'd hope we'd stay business focused to, to get things back online. Uh, uh, but I, you know, I worked on a help desk, I and mean, you know, when things start to go wrong, I mean, everyone almost scrambles to make sure they're part of it you know, is either affected or not affected. And, you know, how does all that come together? Is there a master, almost a guiding principle task list? You know, this is what we're trying to do. You know, not let's not worry about this specific thing right now. What's a major incident plan? Yep. Okay, so in disaster recovery, IT service continuity management, we talk about a process for IT service continuity management, but we also talk about a DR plan. Mm. And this is literally the playbook, the step one through X about what we're going to do to recover either a specific system or multiple systems. Hmm. This is a major incident plan. And one of the elements of the major incident plan is the creation of a checklist with all of the things we mentioned a few minutes ago to ensure that all the component parts necessary to 
enable the major incident handling team to be effective are in place or the people that have need to be on the call have showed up. Right. So we at least know if we've got a gap right at the front. You know, one of the things someone said to me last year, uh, I meet people and they say, you know, you one time you said this and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. And sometimes that creeps me out. But um, one of the things someone said to me was, you said in the future, you will run your business like you're always in disaster recovery mode. Because in some ways, that's the most agile state. Uh, and he was, I can't stop thinking about that because it seems in some ways like when things are, you know, everyone's trying to speed up, we are constantly in disaster recovery mode. And is there a manageable version of that? And I thought, I don't have an answer for you. I just know that some days it seems like that's the standard operating procedure is disaster recovery mode because everyone thinks either everything's a disaster or they just feel because of the speed, it seems like a disaster. So you're getting into the concepts of chaos theory. Mm. We covered that in a show. We did. We did cover this on a show. And the premise being that there's this fine balance where you have to be agile enough to react. Uh, and as this reaction keeps you agile, keeps you fit, keeps you, ability, keeps you with the ability to move quickly, to innovate quickly. And then if you become too staid, too formalized, too rigid, you begin to you know, lose that agility, lose that creative edge. It was that what was that book that uh, Jurassic Park mm. <laughs> has this principle of chaos theory running all the way through it, and one of the things that the author talks about is this analogy. He says there's these guys in a canoe and they're rowing up this stream. Now downstream is a waterfall, you know, with sharp rocks at the bottom. Upstream, if you get far enough up there, the water comes out. In fact, you can pull off into a nice little bywater and have a picnic lunch. So, you know, this team moving this kayak forward, if they get too far up the stream and become too staid, things slow down, you lose your edge, and you have the, the situation of entropy, mm. right? This, the energy begins to drain and the company begins to fall back, even though it seems like it's stable and calm for a while. Now, you let yourself go too far towards the edge, Right, which is crisis mode, and you're always in fear of falling back on those rocks. And now you don't have time to think because you're you're always in survival. So mm-hmm. you, that's not good either. There's this there's this balance between the two that has to be attained, mm-hmm. and otherwise we we lack that innovation edge we need. Well, it's hard to look at that balance when you're looking at how, you know what I mean? It's hard to see if you're balanced, if you're constantly saying how close am I to the edge. Well, yeah. If you're looking over your shoulder all the time, you're not looking forward. Yeah. So it's, it's well, for some reason, when you said that, I saw kind of a picture of a stream, you know, heading toward the edge of that. But uh, yeah, I guess it's backward or forward. Should we, uh, should we figure out what number four was? All right, go for it. Number, what do you think number four was? You know what number four was. Well, I'm not gonna, <laughs> oh God, I sent you these lists ahead of time. Who are we kidding? So uh, number four was episode 51. For those of you, somebody screaming, I know 51. I doubt anyone's doing that. That was recent. Yeah, that was actually November 28th, 2013. That was geeking out on CMDB object models. See, hope is not lost for CMDB. Hope is not lost. What is it? What is it? Robin calls it the 1% or something, you know, that have CMDBs. I don't know. At least people are interested in listening or talking about it. Yeah. Well, I think what they were interested in was it was a good title, Geeking Out on CMD Object Models. Yeah. So do you want to know your Thunderbolt from that day and we can do a, re- a review of it? Go for it. Your Thunderbolt that day was, until we understand and culturally accept the need to manage services and technology system dependencies, we will never really be able to see IT is aligned with the business needs. That's a pretty powerful thunderbolt. Yeah. That's a pretty powerful thunderbolt. Because you you say never in that, and you never do absolutes. (laughs) Well, the premise is you have to understand connectivity. You have to understand dependency, right? Because we treat 
technology as if it's mythically isolated from other technologies, because that's the basis of our organizational structure, our basis of task specialization, our basis of our entire career is based on optimizing, I'm a developer, I'm an infrastructure person, or I'm an infrastructure person and I work on data, uh, databases versus servers versus you know network devices. We, we silo these things into our nice little buckets, but they don't live in nice little buckets. They live in this complex, more of a, a spaghetti ball of connectivity. And it's very nature of complexity scares us into thinking, okay, just give me this one thing to think about. But when we do that, we lose context. Without context, we can't understand dependency, which means impact and, you know, ideally benefit because all these things come together to produce something of value. But when we pull back into our little this is my job and nothing else is someone, you know, nothing else is my concern. How do we claim to be aligned with business outcomes because we're just focused on one piece of the puzzle? I mean, it reminds me, when you say spaghetti ball, I think quantum entanglement. <laughs> Sorry. Quantum entanglement. I say spaghetti. See, that's the difference between you and I, Chris. I think spaghetti ball. <laughs> and I think quantum entanglement. Okay, so, so. I wish people could hear the pre-show. One day we'll record all the pre-shows. Or we'll, actually, we have them all recorded. We'll just release all the pre-shows. Yeah, I mean, th- what I liked about that show was we did kind of geek out a little bit. And we really got into c- context. And then one of the points in the show that I've got here in the notes that was really kind of, and I remember us going over this, is, is context subjective? Um, and we had some great slides from you. Uh, check out the uh, Troy's blog on uh, uh this episode, uh, we had some great screenshots of different systems and how they were integrated. Uh, 51, I mean, that was a pretty epic show, but it was post, I think, both of our Thanksgivings, uh, U.S. and Canada. Yeah, so context depends on where you're standing. Mm. So you're in that spaghetti ball somewhere, mm. right? As an owner, as someone who's responsible for something, mm-hmm. unless you are a senior leader who is supposed to be responsible for the whole hairy ball of wax. But the reality is, from where you're standing, that's the most important thing, right? And people have perceptions or limits on their perception. And depending on what they see as something they need to pay attention to, they'll focus either near focus or they'll have a larger perception of connectivity or context. But it certainly starts from, this is the most important thing because I'm standing on this island right on the map or in this specific spot. Now I'm picturing a treasure map (laughs) with a big X on it. And Troy's like, this is where I am. This is, you know, yeah, (laughs) this is where I am. In fact, what was the episode we talked about? uh, Here there be dragons. And, you know, when the edges of the map are not uh, totally, you know, this is what they used to do in the old times when they had a map that wasn't totally uh, inked in. They hadn't Mm -hmm. hadn't figured out what was across the border. They would say over there be dragons because we don't know what's over there. Yeah. Actually, it was the standard and case show yeah. because we we're talking about the fact that some things can be managed through understanding linear flow and really simple connectivity and context. Sometimes you get into a situation where you haven't been there before and you've got to work based on your best knowledge of what you've experienced in the past. No, and, you know, I think, you know, over the last, at least the last three years, but probably over the last 13, CMD, CMDB gets a bad rap. I think people take it out on the CMDB concept in the larger conversation, of course, is the configuration management system, only because it's been so hard, so much pain and so many failures, people would rather operate under denial. It's not really possible because I haven't been able to succeed at it. All right. Show three, interesting, and it's uh, tied back to show five, was episode 47 and guess what? Gary Case was also <laughs> Gary's the star here. Two out of two out of five. Two out of five with Gary Safar. And this was uh, recorded in August of this year. And it was what it takes to do a service desk. 
this was the one where, and I remember this one because we kind of, we explored it really simply. I said, if I was just creating a service desk from scratch, more my company just become big enough. This was a really important show. We said, you know, what would you do if you could start over? What we, and I thought, I mean, it was a pretty profound show because we had three areas. We had define, create, make uh, something credible, make it compelling, and then actions. It was good stuff. We just created, you know, I think some amazing IP just from that one show, if you want to check it out. We actually, over on SoundCloud, had a couple of people comment. If, you, if you're a SoundCloud listener, you can actually comment on the shows in real time. We had uh, one person say, but generally companies uh, want to achieve this out of, and he talks about his thoughts on when they would actually start the service desk. And he had a couple comments in here, but if you want to take a look at those. So that's, that was a pretty big show for us. What are we looking at here? What it takes to do a service desk? It was about almost close to 1,000 between between plays, uh, iTunes, and downloads. So almost almost twice as big as number five. You know, this continues to be a surprise to me how much interest is still in the basic meat and potatoes of setting up a support function. Uh, but then recently, just last week, I was talking to one of my pink friends and he was relating to me a story. And he was saying, I'm working currently with a customer and uh, this is a managed service provider that in the past has done basically co-location, and then they move now into server, cloud-based storage, storage as a service. And now they've even moved further ahead into now they're offering desktop as a service. So basically your entire desktop image being fed to you via a cloud provider. Which I call my mobile phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you'll be, able, you'll be able to have an entire desktop environment on your mobile phone via this concept like Citrix and VMware and other providers have provided. I know. I just think that's so, some silly. So, you know, you've turned these $2,000 plus machines into you know, dumb terminals again. But the premise is, of course, you can now offload all of that onto a provider. Now, that's this evolution. We're seeing this happen and many companies are taking advantage of this. But here's the, here's the interesting part of the story in the context of this session. So my friend's talking to them about you know, where they want to start their service management journey because they figure out this is something we probably should do because we are now basically the entire IT function for a small, medium organization like a law firm. Where do you want to start? Um, well, we probably should start with incident management <laughs> service desk. But this is the thing. They have been in operation for 10 years and they had yet to figure out a standard basis for capturing issues from their customers, managing those in a, a mature way through rapid escalation and quick recovery, and then capturing history to say, what have we done and how do we get better at it? So we would assume that an organization like the one I'm describing would have figured this out day one because it was a core competency to be a, a provider of service. But 10 plus years later, and they are now so part of a dependency model for their customer base, they're still figuring out the basic concepts of support. I find that strange, Chris. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think it's a kind of exciting that people are so interested. I mean, I don't know, I just, I'm really happy that we went over and, and had the type of discussion about what it would take to, to get it up and running. Because you know, so often people talk about best practices of a service desk or... Uh, optimizing a service desk or the, 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 you know, the meat. But we actually, I mean, in this show, I mean, we said, you know, let's pretend we have nothing. We don't even have, like, people who are dedicated in support. Where do we even start? And that was, that was a big deal. And that was why I brought that story online, because that's what they had to do. You know, the first thing we said is, okay, we should probably have a number posted with someone who's courteous and interested in what yep. you have to say, who will yep. answer your phone in a, re in a reasonable amount of time. Okay. Yeah. 
first impressions are everything, right? Self-evident. Yeah. All right. Then we talked about the fact that someone's taken your phone call. They've captured the details you've said. And now they have engaged a back office process where when they connect with a second or third level support person, that doesn't just drop into thin air or into a black hole, right? Someone's going to actually manage the customer experience, ensure that things get done in a timely manner and people at least get communicated to. These are the kind of things we went into. And I know I'm sounding a little bit annoyed here, but the reality is this is actually missing in many, many, many companies. That's it's number three. But that, but to me, but to me, I remember when we were planning this show. I said to you, "This is why I wanted to do it, right?" Because literally, I thought to myself, "Let's pretend I could get in a time machine and go back." Because I just thought to myself, "What? How would I even start?" And I think that's just it, it's so important sometimes, at least for me, to go. If it was brand new, I don't know. I just think it's such a. Sometimes we're not we're not humble enough in IT to say. Well, what would it like if we just started over and threw everything out? Literally, what would be the first thing we would do? And there's a humility aspect to it for me. And to give people the benefit of the doubt, we've talked about this many times. Organizations build practices, and because of leadership change or focus change, those practices fall apart or even, you know, on purpose removed until they're necessary again or they're recognized as necessary again. So people recurve through these things multiple times. Again, another Rob England antidote. I remember one time he was telling me when he was consulting, he went to this, and I'm sure you've seen this, and, and as you, Pink Consulting has seen this, or I don't know, I'll just say, I'll just leave it, Rob saw it. And he went to this organization, and the guy, you know, the, within the first hour, comes into the conference room with all these binders and puts them on the table, and Rob England says that, and he goes, these were the last two assessments. <laughs> Yes, and and, you know, and and Rob's there to do the assessment. It's just like okay, just like you said, you know, things change and we start over. But we never like start over with the. It's almost like you have to declare service desk bankruptcy. It's like there never was a service desk. It's a you know, it's we're starting from scratch, but we don't. We kind of start over by saying, okay, what do we make better, and how do we look at it, and I don't know. Service desk bankruptcy. We also should we should write a book on that. A lot of companies right now are also. Figuring out that uh, service desks need to be linked because you have a, a larger organization and they'll have multiple points of contact. Like mm. we work with a lot of higher ed organizations right now, and they will have you know every business unit, every faculty tower will have a student contact center for support. So it would be engineering, it would be mathematics. There's general IT, and there's this kind of real convoluted support model. Mm. So a lot of them are actually kind of realizing that's not probably the best thing from a customer experience perspective. And they're creating from scratch an integrated model that integrates all of these different faculty towers. Mm. So that's another place where people are starting from scratch. They're, they're getting it right now. Number two, episode number 48, recorded September 6, 2013, planning a roadmap. So again, this was another one where we weren't talking about a roadmap. We were talking about planning a roadmap. We had Jack on this uh, show. Jack's tip was... If you've not thought about a strategy, if you've not been crisp with respect to what the expectations of the organization relative to the thing you called your ITSM program, stop, back up, take another crack at trying to figure out uh, because it becomes a fool's exercise to develop a roadmap without a compass. And we had some listener feedback over on SoundCloud on this one, too. Mr. Juede Sorpasa at Minute Mark 851 said, great point, working backwards from what the vision is. Thoughts? Yes, the, uh, that concept actually was brought up at our last year leadership event in, uh, in Arizona. And it, they were talking about the planning to get a man on the moon and how when 
you know, the president said we need to get a man on the moon rather than kind of starting from point A and figuring out how they would move to point B and eventually end up in Z or Z. <laughs> they started backwards. They say, okay, we've got a man on the moon. How do we come back from that? So they actually backward engineered. And what Jack was saying was that, okay, let's picture what tomorrow looks like. So we're this technology-focused organization, very silo-based, very technically focused. We want to be an outcome, customer experience-focused organization dealing with services back at this point. All right, what does it look like now from five years out? What things will have changed from a people, a process, a technology perspective? Now, step back, what will we have accomplished by year four? Right? What have we done by then? What have we done by year three? What have we done by year two? What have we done in the you know by year one and then six months from now? So literally the roadmap plan was thought going forward, here's our goal. This is what tomorrow looks like, the vision statement. Now here are the point of arrival statements. We look like, we feel like, we sound like this at that point. Not so much what project am I doing by then? What have we accomplished by then? So that allows me to say what projects or tasks or improvement activities need to be put in place to achieve those arrival statements. The outcome is this, so we must do these things to achieve those outcomes in this timetable. Again, I think it goes without saying, I mean, there's definitely a theme here that we're going we're gonna to cover at the very end. Uh, we're getting close to the top of our show, so let's jump right into number, number one. You know, interesting, Troy, uh, for number one, when we've done these year-end reviews, the number one show each year always is The Pink Show the actual pin conference show that we record live. And it's not the most highly produced because we're not being edited by Ross uh, as much as we normally are with, you know, removing pauses. But I think it's telling that the live event is always the most listened to each year. And so this year was uh, live from Pink 13. Uh, it was episode 39, a service orchestration. And since we had the stats ran, we've had another five people listen to it. So this one's hit coming in at about 1,300 total SoundCloud, iTunes, downloads, and gosh, only knows from your blog. I don't have uh, visions or insight into that. Um, your Thunderbolt, just so you know, was you have to understand larger systems of generating value. So this is service orchestration. Yeah, so we're at a governance conversation now, right? Because we're talking about trying to orchestrate all of the various participants in value generation from right up from a customer engagement set of roles through to planning roles, through to build and test and then run. So the entire service lifecycle that ITIL covers, but of course it goes broader than that. That's where COBIT comes in. COBIT 5 is now you know talking about that entire system of value generation. And the example we use and why we use the word orchestration, we started talking about an orchestra because that is a great demonstration of a system of unique talents and so the question, of course, we talked about is, let's say we went out and hired the best possible talent for every single major section. So we had the best wind section, we had the best uh, percussion session, we had the best brass section, strings, et cetera, et cetera. And even within those, we, we hired the star, right? Each of them known in their own industry for their specific talent on their specific instrument. Now, this orchestra is in premise creating a piece of music that is collectively worked on and people need to know at the right moment when they come in, when they come out, and how they flow from one to the other or how they overlap in a way that's harmonious. And so, you know, the question we talked about was what is a critical success factor for this orchestra to actually do that, achieve that goal? And we said it was, first of all, you need a score, 
which a common sheet of music. <laughs> not a not, not a score, <laughs> not like a, a rating score, but a score, yes. No, literally we have to have a score which speaks to each part coming in at the right time. And then we need a conductor that basically orchestrates. So the, the premise here is that unless we have a score in the concept of this, we refer to it's an operating model, a governance process framework. And we've actually done a couple of shows on that as well. Yeah. Where people understand when they come in, when they come out, and regardless if you're a contract supplier, you know, you've just contracted in the wind section for this one event, they need to know. Because what is the what is the eventuality if everyone singly, singly played or did their best in isolation? What would that sound like? It, it, hopefully it's, it's music. You know, one of my favorite quotes about music, uh, or I don't know if it's a quote, but one of my favorite themes people share with me about music is music is always the space between notes. And I think in this kind of looking back at 2013, you know, as we wrap up the show for, for me, really it wasn't about how much changed or how much didn't change or how fast information happened or how much new fun stuff happened. I think it was about the times when we just took time to focus on the space between notes and just be kind of that. And that was a really good, good thing. And for some way, in some ways, people really got into that last year, I felt. That as well as how do notes connect? Right. This is the systems orientation, the context, the, the perception of... Here we go with that context word again. You, you have to understand context. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what do they say about people who ignore history? They repeat it. They repeat it. They're doomed to relive it, right? Or, or, they, fa- or they fail all exams. <laughs> Especially in history. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, we'll have to, well, we should talk about context and, and complex things like this on, on a show once. Uh, maybe we will. Troy, I hate to do this, but 2013's got some weather it's going to end with. Absolutely. In ways that will make sense very soon, this is officially... The last Thunderbolt tip we're going to do on Practitioner Radio, and we'll explain why in just a moment. But it's time for Troy's Thunderbolt Tip of the Day! So, Chris, when I look back at all these shows, 2013 was the year when many companies realized that the various silos in IT, they need to work together. This this conversation of DevOps and all of the integration of service orchestration and geeking out on object models, which is CMS, configuration management system, you know, planning your roadmap with context of all the things you need to consider. All of that reflects the need to work together. That is the key theme of 2013. So we're going to wrap up the show with a little announcement that something Troy and I have been working on for a couple months. Um, Troy, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what what we're doing? All right. So yeah, for the last three years, we've focused a lot on service management and, uh, that's a valuable conversation. A lot of the listeners are focused there in their own careers, but we're going to broaden out this show. We're going to reinvent this out to the fact that IT touches everything now, right? Yep. In fact, you and I agreed on this conversation that we want to focus on the gap between data, which we have lots of, to wisdom. In fact, um, I was looking at a recent CIO report just released by CIO Search or Search CIO. And data and analytics and data understanding, big data, business intelligence, all of this is really hot. This is the topic people are struggling with. And they, and they do see it. And, and kind of like, um, you know, traditional concepts we've always talked about, they'll probably be struggling with it years from now. But I think, you know, consciously, I and mean, we're not leaving ITSM, so, you know, nobody, you know, we're not going to become the new Coke of podcasts. Um, but, but we're just, we're broadening. And I think it's really important what Troy said, you know, we're focusing on, you know, the, the, the data information, knowledge, wisdom, uh, pyramid in some ways, uh, and, and expanding it. And, and, and we're going to be talking about 
But well, it'll always come back to service management because that's that's where we live. In fact, uh, if you allow me to do a little bit of a promo, we're going to actually start up a new show called Pink Radio where we're going to keep that focus. And that won't be Chris and I, but we'll have other pinkers involved. Mm. Uh, that'll be something that we'll start soon and that will stay focused on the IT management discussion. Yeah, so you're not losing the, the, the pink goodness that is everything that Practitioner Radio brought to it because you can now listen to Pink Radio and, and and get your daily, you know, get your weekly or, or bi-weekly fix. Uh, but Troy and I, uh, Troy, you've got a new role at Pink, right? Yes, so Vice President of Research, Innovation, and Product Development. So, you know, with that, with Troy's new role of research, uh, innovation, and development, we just thought, eh, now's a good time to kind of talk about this sort of stuff. And uh, exciting stuff. Some of you might be listeners of uh, other ITSM podcasts, the ITSM weekly shows around the globe. So, as you may, as most of you probably know by now, those shows have been retired. And uh, uh, so we've got some exciting stuff in uh, 2014. Uh, our first uh, Practitioner Radio uh, 2.0 show uh, will be out before the Pink Conference, and then we'll record our first Practitioner Radio 2.0 live event at the Pink Conference Monday morning at 7.30. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Troy, I don't want to say farewell because it's, we're not really ending Practitioner Radio, but in a way I kind of feel like we, we're putting our baby, we're handing it over, uh, sending it to school or something. It's getting on the bus. <laughs> it's getting on the bus. I'm just, it's going out into a larger context. <laughs> I can't handle it. So uh, please, you know, uh, keep listening. Uh, thank you for all your support. And if you have feedback on PR2.0, let us know. We, we really love the feedback. We actually do read it. We share it. We talk about it. Uh, um, and then, you know, make sure if, if, you, if you're interested, check out uh, Pink, uh, Pink Radio, uh, Pink Elephant Radio. I'm sorry if I'm getting the name wrong. Troy, it's been good. It has. Be well, my friend. Take care, Chris, and we'll see you on the flip side with PR 2.0. Oh.